comedian looks at the world and says, hey, did you ever notice people do this stupid, crazy thing? And a behavioral scientist says, huh, that's interesting. I wonder why. And then they figure out why. And so in many ways, they are looking at the same situation, but just sort of with different goals. And I can even fit a lawyer into that, right? All three, comedian, lawyer, and a behavioral scientist, they will look at a situation, an interaction, they break it down into its elements, and then they retell the story of what happened with a sort of an overriding theme or purpose. Welcome everyone, new listeners and old to A Load of BS, the podcast for curious and nosy people like you who want to understand what's going on between our ears and why we behave as we do. Now today I'm talking with ex-lawyer, stand-up comic and now head of BS at J.P. Morgan Chase, Jeff Chrysler, and we're talking about money and value. Now, Rory Sutherland says that despite what conventional economists say, value is only created behind the eyeballs, by understanding the vagaries and peculiarities of human perception and how changing context can change meaning, how changing meaning can change the emotional response, and how the emotional response can change behaviour, we realise that we're quite able to change customer behaviour without changing objective reality by simply telling a different story about it. And that's the power of low-cost but creative interventions. And this conversation with Jeff should shed some light on that as we discuss what money means to us and how we treat it. Now, let me remind you to subscribe or follow me wherever you listen to your podcast if you haven't done so already. And if you'd like to access my articles, go to aloadofbs.substack.com. Without further ado, it's on with the show. Jeff, welcome to A Load of BS. I'm thrilled we're chatting today. Uh, I am also thrilled. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Now, you are a curious fish, Jeff, having transitioned from stand-up comedy to the world of banking. You can fill in your own punchline there, which I can gladly have a go at since you're now, of course, the head of BS at J.P. Morgan Chase. And that's my first effort of the morning. But moreover, of course, you're also an author, most recently of Small Change, Money Mishaps and How to Avoid Them, which you co-wrote with Dan Ariely. Or it's otherwise titled, isn't it, Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smart. Is there a title which you prefer or both work fine? Either one works fine. I recently revisited our list of names that we were playing with. Um, everything from the very straightforward psychology of money, which now Morgan Housel has used, and not, obviously didn't steal, not that clever. That very straightforward one to crazy things like money bites and mind on your money. And it's all good. It's been fascinating. One of the pleasures of working with Dan is that our books get to go to many countries. So we have the dollars and cents here in the US, small change in the UK, and then it's published in all these other countries where I can't even pronounce what it says on the cover. So that makes sense that the small change is a UK reference. I got it. Although I would think most UK people would know what dollars is. Yeah, a reasonably cosmopolitan bunch here that we can work out the pun. Now, today we'll talk about the messages and goals of that. But I mean, let's also talk about behavioral science more broadly, your thoughts on its role from your vantage point in financial services and where it may go next. You started at JP Morgan in December 2020, if I'm not mistaken, right in the midst of COVID, a time when organizations of all shapes and sizes, and indeed their customers, were having to change their behavior pretty damn fast to account for the new rules of engagement. I just wonder, was that a real baptism of fire? I and mean, what were you seeing when you joined the business? I think it is relevant for some of the things that we saw. However, the impact was probably more personal to me in that I was starting in this large global organization, building something from scratch in many ways and doing so remote. 
I was doing, like I had to personal challenges of working remote in that context in an organization that is very social is the right word, but like it's very collaborative and entrepreneurial and, and it's a culture that well, you, you need to sort of know people and get to know them. So the most glaring impact was on me directly and my ability to build things. Uh, you know, on the plus side, JP Morgan was very upfront and straightforward and sure that the word is forgiving or they just let me know like you have time to get up to speed. One of the benefits, but benefit and a challenge, like I'm used to being in more of a consulting role where it's like you hit the ground running and you got to get stuff done. And I'm used to that progress, but they were like, no, you have time to figure it out. It's a big organization to do it. So sometimes that's good because it allows me to make sure I'm comfortable and well-grounded. And sometimes it's a challenge because you want things tomorrow. As far as starting in the pandemic, it was good to allow me that runway. There were certainly elements more to like broadly, not just personal about the pandemic that we saw impacting people. Where I sit, it's more about investment decisions and wealth management than it is like retail banking, credit cards, et cetera. So the impact wasn't as directly as people aren't going into their branches or they're using remote money more. It was more about the investment stuff. And what was really, of course, compelling was the uncertainty. In December 2020, by then, the market had sort of bounced back from the big collapse in the beginning of the pandemic, but there was still a sense of like where things are going. And as you know well, you know, behavioral science, a lot of the challenge is helping people overcome uncertainty and focus on the long run when they think about decisions, even when the uncertainty of the present is so strong. So that's a long-winded way of saying, yes, it was an interesting time, and it remains so. In our personalized and financialized, like, I'm sure you are we done with this? Like, where, like, what is the future? Like, is there another Omicron point two coming in a few months that's going to shut us down again? And that uncertainty remains a big challenge. For sure. I mean, I think in one way or the other, we are living with this potentially for the next decade. One might argue until there is greater herd immunity, we're going to have to accept all these various mutations. And that's going to obviously have an impact on how we live our personal and work lives. But I was going to ask you, you sort of started to answer this question to understand your role as head of BS, there I say. That's how my friends refer to my Well, I, 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 I like, could... a perfect job for you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's the easy gag. And since I worked in wealth exactly. management at Barclays and saw a reasonable amount of it, I can't help but keep repeating <laughs> the acronym for my own childish pleasure. And I was going to, of course, ask you whether the role is more sort of internal employee or external client focus. I think you part answer that because it's investment focus. So it's about helping clients, as you say, manage uncertainty, help them plan their finances better. But more broadly, I mean, do you think behavioral science can and should play a role in sort of shaping an organization, shaping its culture, mm -hmm. shaping its employee behavior. So for example, I was there right at the time of the LIBOR fixing scandal. And around that time, mm -hmm. there were plenty of other trading scandals in banks around the world. So maybe the exam question then is, you know, how do you use BS to create an environment when those sorts of scandals stop occurring? There's a couple of questions in there to answer. I think the main one, I think that there's a huge role for behavioral science in shaping organizations. And part of my delusion is that at phase three or five of my you know, having this program that, that will have that impact. And, and I've already seen some opportunities and have some different parts of the organization receptive to getting that feedback. Now, whether it's stuff like the science of engagement and motivation and incentives or how behavioral science impacts ethics and compliance. Behavioral science, the great thing about it, which at times can be a challenge too, is that it's so broad. Decisions, behavior, like it's not just do you fall for a sale price and spend too much on your credit card or you know sell your stock position too soon. It's like how do you get yourself out of bed to go to work? How do you engage with your colleagues? How do you follow rules or follow an ethical culture? So there's lessons that can be brought to bear on many different parts of the work that I'm doing both in J 
JP Morgan and other parts of my career and elsewhere. I know for myself, a challenge is always to focus on one thing at a time. So the focus begins on client investment decisions and financial planning with bits already of other opportunities. But, you know, building off that, that's the primary business. And, and some of it to your earlier question is sort of doing client engagement and thought leadership and letting clients understand like what the common biases are and that it's normal, right? And that these are difficult things and that work with someone so that you can achieve your goals. For me, that's a big thing. Like nothing JP Morgan is doing or anything I'd work with is trying to trick anybody. We're actually trying to help clients overcome their biases that sometimes get in their own way. Part of that is teaching the advisors, like you yourself have things that get in your way too, in your client relationships and your relationships with your colleagues. So like, I don't think you can completely separate an organizational behavioral, you know, sort of refresh with the client facing. I think they go hand in hand as advisors understand overconfidence or confirmation bias or any of these things. Like it, it applies to their work as well as their client's interpretation of the work. It's a cliche of the science that those who advise are just as susceptible to all the biases and principles as those who they are advising. That's just a reflection that at the end of the day, we're all human and extreme fallible. I think, you know, you're right. And I think there's an enormous amount more there around how you create solid foundations in the organization to create the conditions and to serve one's clients best. I mean, one can talk about how one uses BS in the realm of recruitment. How do you make that fairer and more uh, meritocratic or how you think about organizational uh, incentives and rewards and how you keep people happy in the organization. There's a whole lot of science there, which I think is really valuable, which might take us off into different paths. But since your focus for the moment is around investment decisions. And we also intended to talk a little about the book that you wrote with Dan Ariely. Let's veer a little towards that. Of course, in your book with Dan, you know, you write about money. And of course, your professional life is about helping others manage and preserve it. Getting a little personal, I wonder, what did money mean to you and your family growing up? Was sort of finance part of the conversation? Or is this sort of rather sort of new interest for you? I was very fortunate to grow up not, I wouldn't say wealthy, but we never felt like our needs would not be met. Let's put it that way. So call that middle class, upper middle class, what have you. Money was not something that early on I necessarily had to learn about. It wasn't that I was living in scarcity, but it was something that interests me. I'll be honest, for a long time, I felt like I veered away from wanting to be a financial professional. You know, I went to Princeton University for undergraduate there are a lot of people when I graduated who sort of veered towards finance or consulting or in my case, law school, because I wanted to be, you know, a great Thurgood Marshall, Thomas Jefferson, somebody in a big puffy wig doing big, important things. So for many years, I didn't really dig in. Like the more I did my work, believe it or not, in comedy as a stand-up comedian, looking at politics and looking at hypocrisy and just the way, like the more like money just kept popping up as a force in our world on individual social decisions. It became such an overwhelming thing that I sort of had no choice but to dig in and doing so sort of in many ways brought me back to my, I mean, I did study economics in college and it sort of brought me back to my roots. And then in an indirect path, I ended up connecting with Dan. So, you know, I wrote a book about satire called Get Rich Cheating, which was like how to be like Enron or how to be a steroid user like Lance Armstrong. It was like one of those how to do get rich in real estate books, but the real rich in real estate was cheating. And I repeat, it was a satire, you know, it had its point, but Dan got a copy of that. And at the time he was working on his book about dishonesty and he invited me to come guest lecture at his class at Duke University. And I did so in character, you know, this very like, hey, just don't have morals and ethics and, you know, no cost benefit and all this. And that was sort of a light bulb moment for me when I discovered now 12 years ago, 13 years ago, the field of behavioral science, because I didn't really connect to traditional economics because I saw that people just didn't 
do a cost benefit, you know, price analysis. They went on emotions there. People were crazy, irrational, right? And then I found this field that studied that and I sort of just left it and it made all the things click for me. What kind of worldview and perspective then does this kind of unusual combination of a law degree, then you go into comedy and then you slide into finance? I mean, what does that mix give you? I mean, by the way, there seems some obvious overlap for some types of very observational comedy, right? I mean, I'm a huge like Larry David fan, for example. There's always, by the way, this sort of fantasy with Larry and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Part of the pleasure of it is that you fantasize about wouldn't it be wonderful even for half an hour to behave like that? And it's actually quite sort of tempting to sort of push the boundaries with being a bit of a Larry now and again to see how far you can go or how quickly you might sort of ostracize yourself from all your friends. But nevertheless, that kind of comedy opens a window, right, to all our quirks and foibles. And I guess BS in a way is doing some of the same thing, but taking it a bit further. Well, what I've found with the benefit of hindsight, because I I wouldn't say I set out this way, but I, I see the relationship as a comedian looks at the world and says, hey, did you ever notice people do this stupid, crazy thing? And a behavioral scientist says, huh, that's interesting. I wonder why. And then they figure out why. And so in many ways, they are looking at the same situation, but just sort of with different goals. And I can even fit a lawyer into that, right? All three comedian, lawyer, and a behavioral scientist, they will look at a situation, an interaction, they break it down into its elements, and then they retell the story of what happened with a sort of an overriding theme or purpose, right? A comedian looks at a car crash, looks at what happened, and tells a joke about crazy drivers, right? Their purpose is to get a laugh. A lawyer looks at a car crash, breaks down the elements, and retells it in order to help their client get the right outcome in court. Like, the other guy hit me. And then a behavioral scientist, like, ideally looks at it and says, people did this because false aversion. My metaphor is falling apart. But in other words, we look at a situation, we break it down. Obviously, the scientist takes a lot more scientific rigor to it. The lawyer is more obviously gender-driven. And the comedian is like, is there something funny here? That's the benefit of hindsight. But to me, in my mind, in my world, it makes sense. Got it. And do you miss the stand-up, Mike? I mean, I ask, by the way, as someone who spent, as I mentioned, two years in wealth management and sort of found it such the ultimate bastion of stuffiness and conservatism. J.P. Morgan, where you are, sounds rather more relaxed. But I mean, you strike me as someone with at least one irreverent bone in your body. So you crave your old world at times. I do. I think even before the pandemic, I was not performing as much as I was when I was younger and could afford to go out every night. I don't mean financially afford, I mean exhaustion afford. I did a few Zoom, but it's never really done. I haven't done a live show in a while, but yes, I certainly miss doing it as much as I did. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about this new position is that they hired me to be me. I don't go into meetings. I'm not cracking jokes and being like the, the office funny guy, but just having a sense of humor. I don't feel like I have to squash it. I think when I was younger, and I sort of rejected that path of finance and, and practicing law, which I never practiced really, it was because I didn't want to have to suppress whatever quirkiness. And now I'm a little more mature, and I naturally suppress it some. I don't feel the need to always be the clown, and this position, the little bits of humor that are appropriate are welcome. So when it comes to then helping people make sound decisions about money, we talk a lot about improving financial literacy. Now, I think this is actually the wrong expression and goal when we think about helping people make better financial decisions. Because yes, you know, obviously we, you know, we spend our money in many stupid ways that don't make financial sense. But we've got to understand that as humans, we are very prone to make irrational decisions, which may not be for our longer term benefit. And therefore, it's more a question of highlighting the tricks and tactics we can employ to mm-hmm. that save more spend more budget better how do you see that because a lot of people always address this issue around well we've got to improve people's sort of financial literacy it's got to start the education's got to start young and i'm not really on board with that 
Well, I'd probably lean towards your position, and I will admit up front that I have an obvious bias towards that. But my approach in finance and others is the goal of behavioral science as I use it is not to change human nature, but to understand human nature. What are the forces that impact us so that we can then design systems and frameworks and conversations, products, et cetera, et cetera, to, to basically help us use our human nature for our own benefit instead of having it be used against us. Right? We're not going to make it so that suddenly like, we don't feel loss aversion or present bias. We're not going to suddenly turn ourselves into like, the perfect rational machine. Instead, we recognize what happens. The classic you know, example, foundational thing of like default payments into your 401k, into your, your retirement. If you select once when you start a job or once a year, yes, take 7% of my paycheck and put it into a retirement savings, then and that's the default. You're going to do that every paycheck. If instead every paycheck, you have to ask yourself, oh, what do I want for my future? And you have to do this, like you're not going to save. So in that way, that's not necessarily teaching people the importance of, of saving money every paycheck. It's teaching them, do this one thing. If it matters to you, do one thing, right? Don't change who you are. Just put a system in place to get where you want to go. And I think sometimes when people say financial literacy, it tends to lean more on like us knowing what we should do then creating systems to first identify and then making sure we do what we want to do. Because I think that I know myself, the challenge of like every day trying to think what's the best choice for me financially is just too much. But if I instead have like sort of systems in place that are that are proven to be towards my goal, that would be more useful, right? Whether it's I'm only going to pay for coffee and cash because I historically know I overspend my credit card or I'm going to have a 401k or, you know, even little things. I literally do the, I put my workout clothes, my sneakers and my gym shorts next to my bed at night if I intend to work out in the morning. It's not a magic switch, but it's a little nudge. Yeah. That's what you're talking about. It's nudges, right? Which we can create for ourselves or indeed externally to help our well-being, whether it's about our fitness or indeed about making sensible decisions. It's not about trying to sort of fundamentally change us as people, because as you say, that's probably unrealistic. I mean, it's interesting to me because I think intuitively, most of us have a decent sense of what's sensible, of course, what's absurd. But nevertheless, we can't help endlessly falling for all these sort of psychological traps that are of our own and indeed others design. One of the things you talk about, I think within, I'm not mistaken the sort of the concept of mental accounting is this idea of the pain of paying which is quite interesting because of course on the one hand you have companies like apple pay for example are in the dock for making us spend money far too easy and indeed pain free so sometimes actually while so digital finance is reducing friction, making customer experience more straightforward. There is value when we think about behavioral science of actually deliberately reintroducing some pain and some friction to help people make better decisions. Absolutely. The book, Dollars and Cents or Small Change, was designed or written more for like a consumer spending audience. Like you're spending too much, like we all are. And it framed like a lot of these issues in a negative way. And I think that like on the whole, for most consumers, they are things like Apple Pay again, or even credit cards or when you can swipe your phone, right? You don't know how much. I have no idea how much I paid for coffee if I'm using my phone all the time. It's just that part of the trick. At the same time, it's essentially a lever, right? The pain of paying and you can use it for what you want. If you want to slow down, if you find yourself, again, I'll use the coffee example. You find yourself spending too much on coffee, start to pay with cash. That's a lot more painful and you'll start to you know, improve it. Or if there's some financial behavior that you actually want to make easier, like saving money automatically, then reduce the pain. There's the app Acorns, right? I believe it's, right. it's called Acorns, where I think the general idea, I'm not representative of Acorns, but it's basically you have a savings goal and then every time you pay through the app, they round up to the nearest dollar and they put that amount of money into a savings account. And that makes it automatic and painless for you to pursue a good goal. So that's reducing the pain of paying with a good benefit, with a goal that you've set. 
And I think in a lot of ways, the first step for me is an awareness that this lever is out there. And then as much as possible, we use it for our own benefit. Again, the 401k is we're going to make saving for retirement painless every paycheck. And we've made the choice to do that, right? Acorns, we made the choice to save as opposed to, you know, the Apple Pay where you walk into a store and you wink at some headphones and you buy it all of a sudden, right? Yeah. The 401k, of course, is an interesting one. We talk about saving for retirement because, of course, it's all about the balance between the immediate gratification of the short term and actually being able to pause the long term. And I think that's an issue which becomes ever more relevant. But if we're all living longer, one may want to have up to sort of 30 years of retirement, or if not, then one's going to be working till 80 if one is constantly yeah. delaying putting a little money away for a rainy day. This has always been fascinating to me, but when I discovered the research about thinking about your future self is really fascinating. You may be familiar with like Hal Hirschfeld, UCLA, and some of the work around like seeing aged versions of yourself, pictures or interacting with them. And in many ways, it's the challenge sort of overriding so many behavioral biases or just mistakes is that we don't connect to the consequences of our decisions, right? We feel right now the temptations, but seeing how it's going to affect our future selves is hard. And, you know, my sort of moonshot idea, whether it's in investing or dieting, whatever it is, it's finding more ways and plenty of designers and products and companies do this in some way to connect to that future, right? To really like when you're making that decision, have that trade-off and be as tangible and, and personal as possible. So someday we'll implant some sort of probably Apple design chip in our head and be able to do that. Yeah, fingers crossed for that moment, of course. You are listening to A Load of BS with me, Daniel Ross. Now, before we continue, I must mention my sponsor, Crankwheel. How many times have you asked people if they can see your screen or hear your voice on Zoom calls? Or had to spend 10 minutes while the other person figures out how to connect? Well, with Crankwheel, you can instantly share your screen and monitor engagement, project HD videos, or even grant control to the other person. Crankwheel is used by sales teams in solar, insurance, digital marketing, and finance, amongst other industries, and it's just great for onboarding new customers, particularly to reduce churn rates. You simply share a link during a phone call, and the other person enters on any browser, any device without registration or installation. Now, a load of BS subscribers can use Crankwheel Unlimited for two months by signing up at get.crankwheel.com forward slash load of BS. Now on with the show. One of the other discussions which I think you address very early on in the book, outside of talking about these little nudges and tricks in terms of helping us decide, you know, whether that certain things are worth spending on is actually the broader question of how we actually value things, right? And in a complex world, of course, where we're making hundreds of decisions a day, some of them financial, many of them not, I sort of feel if I'm an alien landing on Earth, where would I start? How do I start to assess opportunity costs? It's just, it's far too complex. And in a sense, life's frankly just too short to be trying to compute all the math every second of the day, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one thing that we were conscious of in the book, and I've since been very conscious of it, is we're not prescribing that people become these budgetary freaks, just like counting every penny and trying to make the perfectly rational choice all the time. That's just unhealthy and a recipe for something not good. Somehow that relates to the question of financial literacy, et cetera. I don't want to go off too much of a tangent. What I have seen, though, more in practice, whether it, you know, it was in the days of consulting and speaking just in different groups, is the, the advice I gave is to flip 
on its head what we normally normally it seems like that we sort of obsess about the small things and we let the big things go in other words like we're renovating a house we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars we're considering putting in some marble sink that costs ten thousand dollars and as compared to the rest of the cost of the house we're fine i mean it, who cares just another drop in the bucket and then later that day we go to the supermarket and we sweat over 15 cents more uh, you know per pound more for organic tomatoes, right? The organic tomatoes will never add up. And it's sort of, it's flipping a bit of it on its head saying, okay, it's the big decisions that you should take your time and be detailed and even invite and deal with whatever stress and that hard, because that big stuff is what matters, right? How much you spend on a house, a car, college, healthcare, et cetera. The little ones, like every now and then check in, right? Are you spending $15 a day on coffee? Like maybe don't do that. But like don't obsess about it every day because then you become miserable and it actually doesn't have as much impact. I think that's an important point because I think if you take the traditional economist view who would say that, you know, that money is the only measurement framework that matters. But I think the world becomes a sad place, you know, if every single activity we do is for sort of pure optimization. So as you say, focus on the big stuff, but, you know, being irrational is part of being human. So there's this danger otherwise, which I think you flag very well in the book, that if we increasingly tend to rely endlessly on sort of data science, you know, to iron out, to try and iron, iron out, I suppose, is what makes us who we are, what makes us individual. But it kind of rather, in my view, moves us over to an over-mechanized, decontextualized, black and white world in which the machine rules and creativity and imagination are flattened. I think like a world without any indulgence is a sad one. Although I think there's an important caveat there that I don't know whether you guys reflected on writing the book that, you know, deciding about budgeting around one's latte budget and organic tomatoes are basically high class problems. But I suppose that, you know, you can make analogy for that at any level of wealth. Absolutely. Look, people living in scarcity, unfortunately, need to like will pinch their pennies at the supermarket because that makes a difference in their lives. So it is definitely a class type of problem to have. And there are some great books that address those levels more. But I do think that the point of trying to iron out or flatten out, or just basically like the reason why I rejected early on practicing in finance and economics was I had this perception that it wasn't realistic because I saw myself and my peers like not making choices based upon like, is this latte going to make me, you know, not retire for an extra five years. I wanted to have a latte, right? Like it was a cold day and I wanted to like feel something warm. And that decision had nothing to do with money, at least on its surface. And so it's why I very strongly advocate like assess what your needs are. And if you're trying to save or something specific, you're really tight on money, like obviously do what you need to do. But once you've cleared the like absolute need level, other financial decisions, think about your long-term goals and also find a way to like enjoy your life because your long-term goals won't matter if you're a miserable person because of your stress. Indeed. Funny enough, I did a podcast with a wine expert called Joe Fattorini a few months ago. We discussed the different occasions in wine choice between sort of satisficing and maximizing, which is to say that, you know, sometimes actually buying a 100 pound bottle of wine is what feels good despite, you know, their frankly minimal return on investment beyond about 30 pounds, you know, sometimes the pleasure of splurging is just okay. And interestingly, connecting that, you know, to the book, you talk about the power of expectations, of course, influencing yep. experiences. It's the anticipation which improves the outcome. I'll let you comment on this in a moment, but something which has always occurred to me, which must connect to this, and I say this as someone who's done an MBA degree, which sounds like a sort of a terrible sort of name drop thing, thing to say, but I don't intend it to be. But what's curious about it is that you cannot find an MBA student anywhere in the world who did not love their experience. And my hypothesis for why this is, is because it cost $100,000. It is going to be far too painful 
to frame it any other way. I don't know whether you find equivalent, whether from as a part of the, your alumni organizations, but you talk to any of these guys, it's the best thing they've ever, ever done. And I'm thinking like, of course it is. You would never, it's too painful. You're so invested in it, right? It's kind of similar with yeah. the $100 bottle of wine. When you taste it, it's going to taste great, whether it's a glass of vinegar. <laughs> That's really interesting. I can't help veering a little bit to my own. What's the opposite of rose colored glasses? Whatever color glasses it is regarding law school, because I bet if you ask law students the same question, their response wouldn't be the same, even though I would bet, again, without the data, is that a lot of it is informed by like what the MBA or the law degree has then led to. Like I think a lot of law students become lawyers and probably aren't happy in their career. And so they look back at that time as a launching pad to something that maybe didn't. But whereas perhaps more MBA students for because of the broad nature of it, like lead to something that they more enjoy. I went to University of Virginia Law School and it was literally next door to Darden, a great business school. And I audited some classes there and I found the law classes, the ones that I liked to be so fascinating. Like I loved the school part of it. It was just a professional. Anyway, we're off on a tangent here, but I do think that like our measure of the value of something is dependent upon things that aren't necessarily about the thing itself, right? Whether it's the expectations, whether it's because I paid $100,000 or whether because in my mind, I connect it to the beginning of something else that I really liked. If you're on a date and you go to a horrible restaurant, but the date ends very well and you end up marrying that person, that is the best date you ever had, right? You go to like the fanciest restaurant in Paris with someone and she breaks your heart 10 minutes later. That's the worst restaurant you've ever been to. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some post-rationalization rather than anticipation exactly. there. But yeah, no, for sure. I mean, rituals are also, I think, play a similar role in terms of how they affect the experience, whether that's, you know, your daily coffee purchase or it might be like returning to the same hotel year after year. Funnily enough, I did another podcast, actually. I interviewed a guy called Dr. Dimitris Zigalatas on the importance of rituals from repetitive, low-intensity ones to extreme ones like heavy-duty body-piercing festivals and firewalking and such like. But I wonder, how does the power of ritual then influence the way we think about money and experience the things that we consume? Well, I will first admit that we wrote about it extensively in the book, and I haven't thought about ritual in a while, so I'll miss some of the scientific levers thing off the top of my head. But it is about... If I recall, it's about setting expectations because expectations are so powerful in our assessment of how we value something that if we believe something we're doing is creating the circumstances for success, that will raise our expectations for it. I know when I play pool, for instance, or billiards for the continental set, uh, when I play pool, I have a few like just silly rituals I do, like with a piece of gum and a chop, whatever, and it just it makes me feel like, oh, this is getting me to be a, a good pool player. One of my favorite baseball players was a guy by the name of Wade Boggs in the 1980s, and he was known to eat chicken before every game because he believed it would make him a better player. There is an interesting science in sports in particular where like people are now harnessing that and saying, yes, like let's have rituals. Let's have that be part of the psychological training. I'm not, again, familiar with enough of the science to say how impactful it is, but to the extent it impacts our expectations of an experience, which then is what impacts how we value that experience, it absolutely has an impact. And we're on the border of ritual and superstition, I think. And I think you know, I've talked to yeah. sports professionals who've gone through all their rather 
curious, unique rituals. And I think obviously there's something, again, I'm not talking the science here, but there's something about association, isn't there? So you do things and you repeat things which you associate with good outcomes. And some of it is serendipitous, which is that you start doing something and then something good happens. And so you just keep repeating it and vice versa. Banking, of course, has quite a lot of rituals. I don't know whether you've experienced that because you've been mainly at home. But one of the things I always made me think about when I was reading about rituals in your book and uh, connecting it back to my time in banking was the ritual of uniform, for example. And I found that wealth management was very particular, even more so than, say, investment banking. I think, you know, lots of sectors have their own approximate uniforms, although that's drifted in the last two years towards sort of tracksuit and slippers with shirt on top. But certainly, for example, ties had enormous signaling value at Barclays. So, for example, if you were wearing Hermes or Salvatore Ferragamo, that was real top of the hierarchy stuff because the sliver of the tie underneath would show off the logo and you could really have bragging rights for that to sort of indicate that you were stupid enough to spend $200 on a tie. I have been in person some and I tend to now I'm two or three days a week and I haven't seen that yet. When people meet with, but I don't know if this is a change, I can't speak because I wasn't there before, but if people are just in the office, there isn't as much pressure. But obviously when people meet with clients, particularly high-end clients, like people dress professionally, so it's still there. So that's another thing that in my earlier years of not wanting to be in big law firms and everything else was, I felt like the status around fashion was a little overstated. Now, admittedly, that was because I have no sense of fashion. <laughs> so I've, I felt under-equipped to compete. So in the world of finance, it's fascinating. And I've been very pleasantly surprised where I am now that people, both internal culture as well as like our goals toward our clients is very positive. I came prepared to constantly talk about Richard Thaler's three ethics of behavioral science. And I, and I bring that up uh, quite frequently, but like I bring it up proactive. I've never had to like say, no, we can't do this because it's not at, like, it's been very refreshing to see in wealth management. Like, yes, we make money, but we make money when our clients do well. Those goals are aligned. So talking of Richard Thaler, actually, I wanted to, I was going to come back to one of the principal techniques we use to actually make financial decisions, which you talk a lot about in the book, which is mental accounting, which is something that Thaler first talked about, the idea that we budget by categorizing our spending into different buckets. And of course, there is some sense in that because obviously we can't possibly compute the opportunity cost of every single purchase we make. I wanted to get your view on a difference of opinion, which I was reading around on this subject. So let me put it to you and see where you come out. But in his book, Misbehaving, so Thaler talks, of course, as you do a bit about fungibility. So, you know, in other words, my $10 bill is identical value to your $10 bill. And he uses our favorite example for all mental accounting sins, which is, of course, the casino. And he says that, you know, we tend to put our starting cash pot of chips in one pocket and chips we've won, in other words, house money in the other. He says that, you know, this is essentially foolish and that's the principle of fungibility. But there is an interesting challenge to this argument, which I'd love your view on. And that comes from Nassim Taleb. I think he writes about it and fooled by randomness, but it may have come from elsewhere because he says that, you know, this kind of mental accounting actually is not at all irrational. Indeed, it is totally sensible to treat money you win differently from money you started with. Because like, if you win a bet, then you should use house money to increase that bet. And that allows you to gamble or to take a risky strategy without ruin. And he would position it as the difference between treating the world as a one-shot experiment versus a repetitive series of experiments and bets. And, you know, Taleb would distinguish then in the real world between traders who survive, in other words, using the kind of mental accounting he promotes and the kind of academics, as he would pejoratively call them, who trade and fail, like the long-term capital management hedge fund of the late 90s. But I just wonder whether you see some truth, well, where you see the truth in the right version of mental accounting if you're kind of under conditions of survival. Is Thaler sure. right or is Taleb got something to say there? 
Well, I guess the question, are you under conditions of survival or are you not? Because there is great value in, in creating an account, which is sort of like your necessities. And everyone has different definitions of necessities. Sometimes it's literally survival, food and housing. Sometimes it's retirement and legacy planning. So I think there is a value in isolating sort of your chunks of money. And if you create a money pool, whatever size and whatever source that is like, I can afford to lose this, then that's great. Then you can treat it differently. You can experiment, right? You go to the casino, we'll start with $100. That you're up a thousand dollars, you put aside like you have five hundred dollars. That you're like, I, if I lose all this, I don't care. Then you can behave differently towards it. You can go to the roulette wheel and throw all that out. And even in investing, right? If you have a pool of money that you're like, I will be safe and secure even if I get wiped out here. That little sliver of money, then you can go to crypto or what? You can go to like entrepreneurship and take on risky new startup companies. That like you can behave differently towards your money if it is not like I need it to get home tonight money. And so I do believe that there's a value in that mental accounting. Is it rational? No. Like all the money is our same, right? You're going to the casino, the $1,100 that you have in your pocket is in many ways, it's all your money account. But then you're forced to do the hard work of every time you make a decision, how does this affect my get home money or in your investment? Like how does this affect my making sure my kids have education money? And that it's too many emotions, it's too many different factors. And I think if you're able to break things down into small little buckets, you're better able to make a decision within each bucket on what to do. And, and sometimes that decision is about risk taking. If you have the resources and you literally can afford to lose that little bit of money, right? Everything else is protected. Then you could take risks if that's what you want to do. Looking towards the future of money, it occurred to me whether you need or consider rewriting the first part of the book, which is titled what is money? Because as money in payment becomes ever more digital and cash becomes increasingly obsolete, you know, maybe our propensity for thoughtless mental accounting will decline with better tools, or maybe the pain of paying for things becomes less, but with more problematic side effects, which could be in a world without cash, it's even easier to circumvent the sense of loss. So I wonder whether you sort of see what you and Dan have written, not perhaps as a work in progress, but you'll need to review some of the thinking as time goes on. I think there will be some changes to how what money is. I think the broad framework and the biases will still remain the same. I think we'll be living in a world where that stuff that is more painless is more common, whether that's things like crypto or whatever it may be. So I think the, the form that money takes is going to change, but the impact's the same. And in many ways, I think it's going to make it more of a challenge. If you're making your financial decisions based upon you know, a currency, quote unquote, that itself is volatile, right? I mean, not that the dollar is, you know, totally stable, but historically more so than like the, the, like that adds another layer of uncertainty to it. So I think the challenges remain. I think that yes, a, a future version would have to like address that. I do not feel comfortable commenting on crypto right now in any sort of official or unofficial capacity. I think there's some interesting potential there, but I think there are a lot of giant challenges that need to be addressed first. That's my position at this moment. But I do recognize that I think some form of that and things associated with that is going to be part of the future of money going forward. So let me ask you a final question before we conclude with some quick fire. What did you learn by writing alongside Dan? Working with Dan was amazing. I learned the importance of how to like find out exactly what a study or what research said 
and then being able to bring it into a broader audience. I mean, I think one of the skills that I brought to it, Dan was already a great writer that connected with a broad audience. I almost wondered why he bothered. But I think in addition, one of the things that I maybe did a step more was having this ability to connect to a broader audience. And I had always tried to represent what I was saying, like accurately, but he was very conscientious of making that so. And, and I loved being able to work with him because he allowed me, this was a challenge at first for me to accept because you know he's an expert. And I was an expert, but he allowed me to take a stab at something and say, hey, this is what I think is happening. So I think it affects people. This is what I think. And then he would provide feedback and we would work together. So I learned about the importance of making sure that you don't overstate the balance of saying something broad without it being so general that it loses meaning. And I also like learned a lot about collaborating with you know, an expert. And it's a lesson that, that in a weird way, I've gotten myself and working with him, it was, there was a clear, he's the expert on whatever the opposite is. But I've since worked on projects where even though I have imposter syndrome and feel like I shouldn't be thought of as someone who know, like there are others and more junior that look to me. And so working with him, I learned a lot of lessons about working with others and allowing others to bring their unique skills to and, and experience the thing. So he is, I believe, you know, in the textbook, the dictionary next to the word mensch, in my experience, is this picture of Dan. And to sort of tie it a little bit back to what we talked about earlier, like when I look at my career, the whole thing, including my time in showbiz, I worked with some amazing stars, people you've seen on big screen and little screen and big names. And the person who probably helped my career the most was the economics professor. Right. It wasn't it wasn't Mr. Showbiz, it wasn't all this stuff. And there's a lot of things to unpack there, but I'm I'm eternally grateful for the partnership. The economics professor presumably helped you in a way that he or she didn't envisage helping you. It took you in a completely different direction that they may have intended, but all for the better. I still believe I'm part of an experiment that he's running, but I haven't <laughs> figured out what that is yet. Right. Shall we wrap up with some quick fire? Great. Good stuff. Okay. Don't think about these too much. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh, dear. On top of my mind, I'll say, Dan, we were having wine, and I had just learned that the network that I was working on a TV show with was being sold. And he said, hey, do you want to write a book with me? And I said, eh, I'll think about it. <laughs> and then the answer is yes. What's your most powerful memory? I remember, uh, there are many, but when I was five years old, my father was on sabbatical. He was, is a physicist, and we were living on a in a village on Lake Geneva on the French side, a little like, and as five years old, I, I can remember running down to the local bakery like every day or every few days and saying, du pain s'il vous plaît. Like I had to go get the bread as a little, like I, I just have this vision of like running on these cobblestone streets. That's a nice one. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. Whew, most people don't know. Well, I will say given that the last couple of years, most people don't know that my hair is thinning in the back can't see that i'm doing a lot of zoom stuff and so they see what is like my normal nice curly luscious hair but i think i, I might need to become an orthodox jew so i can wear a yarmulke well i know this is my own aspiration as well i'm is the same if i tilt forward uh don't do it don't do it <laughs> don't do it i know i know it's only in certain sort of photographs you know when you're having your hair cut and they sort of put the thing at the back you say it does not add to Who the experience <laughs> i know stop doing that just reveal something that i don't want to see any longer what's your desert island music flexible i think considering have to be there forever i would probably go with jazz i do need something that i can dance to i like to have dance parties with our family but i think that like too upbeat forever would that's what i don't need that much which book do you gift most regularly not your own kurt vonnegut's welcome to the monkey house it's a collection okay. of kurt vonnegut short stories always like a book recommendation that i particularly when i'm not familiar with and that's great and then finally winding down away from work tell me a little bit more about your hobbies 
the aforementioned dance parties with family. Cooking is a big one. Probably if I had to, I'd say right now, cooking is top of the list. Fantastic. And with that, Jeff, let me thank you so much for spending time with me. You know, when I worked in banking, there was plenty of BS, but not so much of the kind uh, that you shared today. And I think having a, a comics mind definitely brings a, a lightness, a humor and a groundedness to subjects, which are, of course, sometimes serious. But other times uh, we have to accept that managing one's latte and sushi budget is a problem that many people around the world would love to have. But as we said, whatever one's level of wealth, there are always decisions and trade-offs to make. And your and Dan's writing and indeed your thoughtful insights today go a long way to sharing the methods behind our madness. So thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Great pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this chat with Jeff. From all my experience of dealing with people in financial services, Jeff mixes a sharp mind with an easygoing demeanour like only the best of them. Next time, I'm talking with football writer and broadcaster Guillaume Balaguer, someone whose work I admire and whose commentary on the game of football is eloquent, thoughtful and profound. Like me, Guillaume is endlessly curious about what makes people tick, the psychology of sports, how players and coaches become successful and also why they go wrong. Guillaume has written superb biographies of some of the most iconic players in history, Pep Guardiola, Cristiano Ronaldo, Diego Maradona, Lionel Messi, and of course Maurizio Pochettino, who as a Spurs fan myself, I have a lifetime soft spot for. So tune in for that, until next time.